Hey everyone, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a new day. Thank you for some lightning restrictions in our province. We pray for your continued mercy here and that for healing of this disease and for wisdom for our leaders and our um, our medical professionals, God, as we face this thing. I pray that you would open your word to us today, Father, that you would speak through me, God. We, we're here to hear from you, not from me, Lord, so I pray that you would speak. In your name, amen. We're continuing in our series on the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 in our series called Hope and Faith. Now, this whole middle section of Hebrews it's about comparing Jesus to things that have come before in the story of God's people and showing how Jesus is like them, but better. Jesus gets compared to angels who are said to have delivered the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. This derives from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. Jesus is compared to Moses and the promised land. Jesus also gets compared to the priestly order and especially to Melchizedek, who we'll be speaking about today. And lastly, he's compared to the whole system of sacrifices and the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. So with that, let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, where we discuss how Jesus is like Melchizedek. But really, we start at the end of chapter 6. So let's read just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That last line is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 4. It's a psalm of David foretelling the coming Messiah. Remember a couple weeks ago when I said that Hebrews is a book that is deeply couched in the culture and story of the Bible? Well, Here's a great example of what I'm talking about. Here the writer is referencing a psalm that is itself referencing a passage from Genesis chapter 14. It's these layers upon layers. It's this whole culture of the Bible. So let's dig into this passage. Here's a line that strikes me as odd. I wonder if it does the same for you. In chapter 7 verse 3, it's talking about Melchizedek. It says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So why is that weird? Well, I think it's weird because we're used to characters like this. We don't think that it's odd for a person in a story to have no mention of parentage or descendants or when they died or when they were born or... Right? Like, we don't think that that's necessarily odd. But Genesis is not that kind of story. And most of the Bible is not that kind of story, but Genesis in particular. Genesis is full of genealogies. In fact, the word Genesis means beginnings. It's the beginnings of everything in the Bible. Genesis is full of genealogies primarily for God's people specifically, but also for many of, frankly, their enemies. For example... Lot is a character in Genesis. He features prominently in the same story as Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. In that story, some of the city-states of the area go to war with other city-states, and one of the people caught in the crossfire and captured is Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham assembles the fighting men of his household and his allies, and he goes after these armies. 
Now, I got to say, I do not associate Abraham with clandestine military operations, right? Like, it's a bit of a head tilt. Let's just read these couple verses because I don't know about you, but for me, this just throws a wrench in how I usually picture Abraham. Genesis chapter 14, verse 14 to 16. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. This is definitely not the way I usually think about Abraham. So, who is Lot, aside from Abraham's nephew? Well, he's not actually a very good friend to Abraham. Although Abraham rescues him, when they go to split up because their herds are too big, Lot chooses the better land, leaving Abraham with the worst land. And eventually we learn who Lot is. He's the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites, which are two tribes on the eastern side, on the other side of the Dead Sea, who give Israel a whole lot of trouble. We learn this right at the end of Genesis 19, and the story is, well, let's just say it's not a story that they tell in Sunday school. But so much of a person's identity in this world, right, this world that we're talking about, the world of Genesis, comes from their heritage, their lineage, and Lot being the father of these enemy nations tells the readers just about everything that they need to know about him. So almost everyone in Genesis has these associations, either with people who came before or with people who came after, but not Melchizedek. He's just there. And not only is he there, but Abraham, the great hero of our faith, the father of not only Israel, but many nations, gives him a share of the plunder from this battle he's just won. So Melchizedek is this near-mythical, mysterious, but apparently worthy of great honor, priest of the Most High God. It's like he's a whole order of magnitude higher than Aaron and the Levite priests of Israel. And so we come to the comparison that Jesus is better than the priesthood. Chapter 7 of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, where we're actually preaching from today, Chapter 7, verse 23 to 25. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is the ultimate priest, the one who stands between us and God and speaks on our behalf. The warning against falling away in this passage is that Jesus is our best and most perfect chance to be in right standing before God, to be free of our sin and all the evil that we do and think and say that separates us from God and the life that is in him. What about Hebrews chapter 8? Well, Hebrews 8 is the beginning of how Jesus offers a better covenant. This theme continues into chapter 9 and 10. And in fact, it reminds me of something else from the Bible. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples are standing on 
the mountain with Jesus. And Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven. This is after the resurrection, after the crucifixion. He's, he's risen and he's defeated death. And he's now standing before them. And they ask him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking him if he's going to restore the kingdom. But God wasn't there to restore something that came before. Jesus was there to replace what was there before with something much better. I'm sure Precious will be sharing with us next week regarding this new covenant and Jesus' superiority to the sacrificial system. But that's really the thing to keep in mind, that Jesus came to bring something better. And so when Hebrews chapter 8 describes this difference between Jesus and the sacrificial system, that's what they're bringing up. Now, it's worth noting that what chapter 8 describes as the new covenant, specifically what it references from Jeremiah chapter 31, is somewhat unfulfilled. And this is a theme with Jesus, that in the Old Testament they spoke of the day of the Lord, when judgment would come and the cosmos would be rewritten and restored and God's people would be free to live in God's light. But Jesus does it in steps. Jesus brings in a new covenant. Jesus does away with the sacrificial and priestly systems so that we can enjoy a relationship with the, with the divine, but not quite in the way that Jeremiah promised. It's this idea of now but not yet, which we see quite often in Christian thinking. And we can see it in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11, where it says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This, what we're doing right now, me doing this teaching and you learning, means this hasn't been fully grasped yet. And certainly it has in part in that we as a Christian community all know the Lord and don't need anyone to tell us that. But there are so many in this world who don't. But that day is coming, now, but not yet. And this language of everyone knowing God appears again in a passage that I feel like I reference a lot, but it's pretty important, so I'm going to keep doing it. It's in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where John tells us about the new heaven and the new earth. He says in chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And there's that idea that everyone will see God and know him and be known by him. We are called to know God, to be known by him, to serve and love and have everything about our lives turned upside down, only to discover it wasn't our lives turned upside down, but right side up. That it was we who were upside down to begin with. Jesus calls us into this new life, this new covenant, this hope that we can live in a world where God is as vibrantly part of our lives as the people we see each day. To those of us who are on that road, the message of Hebrews is, don't be deceived, don't turn away, don't lose this amazing thing that you already have. And to those of us who aren't yet on that road, those of us who haven't yet called Jesus as the Savior and Lord of our lives, the message of Hebrews is to come, join us,
be joined to the one who is above angels and priests and sacrificial systems and who came down from highest heaven to become one of us and to welcome us into the family of God. And I hope we can walk together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the words that you've shared with us, with the, the thoughts and ideas that you've put into our hearts, Lord. We pray that we would be your people, that we would be people of hope and of faith, and that people that would trust in the superiority of Jesus, that Jesus is better than anything else that we can come across, that we would hold him and your truth so tight. We thank you, Lord, for all of this in your name. Amen. Have a great week.